Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're tuned into Future City. On this show, we change the question from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next for Baltimore. We've covered everything from tiny homes to Confederate monuments to vocational schools, and you can find all these episodes online at wypr.org slash podcast central. But on today's show, we're tackling the topic of women's financial equity. In the past 50 years, women have been entering the workforce in droves and are increasingly financially independent from their spouses. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, there are 74.6 million women in the civilian labor force. Women own close to 10 million businesses, accounting for $1.4 trillion in receipts. Working moms are not sorry. Working moms are the norm, not the exception, with 70% of mothers with children under 18 participating in the labor force, over 75% of whom are working full-time. Mothers are the primary or sole earners for 40% of households with children under 18 today, compared with only 11% in 1960. Now, these stats show just how far women have come regarding equal opportunity in the workforce. But the current moment is not without its challenges. Women who work are often still largely responsible for child-rearing, not to mention the physical and emotional challenges that come with pregnancy. While women in business and in the science fields are growing, the majority of women are still gaining degrees in social and artistic fields, fields that pay less over a lifetime. And when one considers that the rate of single mothers are growing in this country, the challenges only become greater. About four in 10 children were born to unwed mothers. Nearly two-thirds were born to mothers under the age of 30. While some of these single mothers may have the financial support of the father, many do not. What does this mean for women in the workplace, attempting to gain and sustain financial wealth for herself and for her family? These are big and difficult questions. And there are so many varying opinions and explanations for the challenges that women face today. But one thing is clear. Women are actively striving for an active, equal, fair shot at wealth creation in today's economy. And our economy needs it. Today, we're going to be talking with female business leaders, journalists, and nonprofit leaders. We'll be discussing everything from how to champion companies that value women to pregnancy discrimination issues to the importance of teaching young girls about investing. First to join us today on the show is Georgine Huang. She is the co-founder and CEO of Fairy God Boss, which is the largest career community for women. And she's also a contributor to Forbes. Georgine, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Wes. So, so first of all, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and, and your professional background just to help us to get a better understanding of why you started Fairy God Boss? Sure. I've spent about 15 years in corporate America prior to starting Fairy God Boss. And um, Fairy God Boss was born of a very personal experience. You could say it started with a very bad day at work. I was at the time a executive at a large media and publishing company, and one day my boss, the CEO, came in, was fired, and two weeks later the whole management team was let go, including myself. And it happened to be a very awkward time for me because I happened to be two months pregnant at the time. So 
not showing yet and not really talking about my pregnancy and not wanting to during my job search. Fairy God Boss really was born at this moment where I was looking for work while you know, pregnant and not wanting to, to talk about it. It's interesting because for so many entrepreneurs, the you talk with an entrepreneur and, and it says, uh, you know, what motivated you to start it? And, and they say, you know, their own experiences. And it sounds like, you know, for you, that's very much your situation. Right. And I think it was very helpful that I had worked for a while. I know there's many young entrepreneurs out there who come right out of school wanting to start a company. But, you know, it, it took this sort of catalyzing moment for me to realize that, I really had learned and seen a lot about what women face in the workplace for the last 15 years, and I really wanted to do something to make it better. And can you explain to our listeners the model of Fairy God Boss? Sure. So women come to our site. It's 100% free to use. And what we are is a free resource where women can hear from each other anonymously about what it's like to work somewhere. And the, the, you know, the central piece of our site is free and anonymous job reviews for women by, by women. But we also have a lot of community forums where women just want to talk about things that are happening to them or get advice about anything from, for, for example, someone was um, engaging with me in a lively discussion recently about whether to change their last name because they built up a personal brand and they wondered if it would look bad, you know, take, to take their husband's name. And a lot of women chimed in on this issue. So hmm. that's not really about a company or an employer per se, but it's a, it's a professional issue, and, and women are worried about being judged for things that I think men don't really give a second thought to many times. It's interesting because it also seems like it's something that, that, it's, that it's not only for women to check out, but that men should actually be checking this out as well to get a better understanding of what are some of the big issues that women think about and that women face in the workplace that, that uh, for many men, they just wouldn't even think about. Absolutely. Yeah, we have a lot of engaged male managers and HR um, you know, executives who are men and CEOs who are men who are really trying to make... Um, a difference and improve their companies in this area. And so we have a lot of data and anecdotes about what they can do. And so what are some of the most common uh, complaints or comments that you'll hear, uh, you know, on the side when women talking about workplace environments? And, and what are some of the things that have been the biggest uh, uh, aha moments for you or lessons learned that, uh, that, you know, you didn't even realize that X was as big an issue until you started seeing it on the site? You know, when, when I told people we were starting a job review site for women, a lot of people's reactions and expectations were that we were going to get a lot of either angry, unhappy women or people who had very extreme experiences one way or the other. And actually, after, you know, tens of thousands of reviews, what we've seen is that there really is quite a broad and normal distribution of you know, opinions about what it's like to work um, as a woman in the workplace. So what I'm trying to say is that there really is a lot more people in the middle and you have very balanced and nuanced views of this topic rather than these extreme views. So I would say that that's probably the number one most surprising thing um, to me and to a lot of other people to hear. I mean, sometimes people ask me, well, George, is it really about what it's like at a particular company or is it about a manager or a particular department? And I would say that it really depends on the company. Some companies and employers have monolithic cultures, while others really leave it to managers or departments to sort of create microcultures. And to some extent, that's also a company's prerogative or fault if, if you have it, if, if they know or it's well understood that a department or a set of managers isn't particularly female-friendly. 
And I'll get into what female friendly means in my view after you know reading all of these reviews. And so, so why don't why don't we we go there go there right now? What exactly do you mean by female friendly? So we ask women not just an open ended question about what it's like to work somewhere, but we ask fifteen quite specific questions around the friction points that we've heard from women and employers about what it's like to be a woman in the workplace. So we ask things about whether women feel paid equally to men, promoted equally to men, how flexible their work-life balance is, whether they took maternity leave at a company. And these are all different phases and points at, you know, a woman's career. We also ask about women in management positions, what would cause a woman to stay at a company for longer. And we see that there's a lot of correlations between high levels of job satisfaction and things like longer paid parental leave. We see there's job satisfaction that's correlated with better work-life balance. We see that when women believe that they're being promoted and paid equally, that they have higher levels of job satisfaction. So in other words, the data is about correlation. You can't really prove causation when you look at the data of the kind that we have. But I think it makes a pretty compelling case um, because a lot of these notions are pretty intuitive, that if you're promoted and paid and you have good work-life balance and you are treated the same as men, that you'll think that your workplace is pretty good. Talk about some of the things that you're seeing, particularly in whether it's corporate America, whether it's small businesses uh, or nonprofits or any type of work environments, uh, do do the corporations or the entities, do they understand how important it is to get this right? You know, because there's a difference between doing it because it's a nice to do and doing it because the health of your environment, the health of the growth of your entity, it depends on it. Where are we, do you believe, in terms of the conversation for helping people to understand that this is not something to do because you're checking a box, but this is something to do because it depends on, you know, this, this really is about uh, the growth and sustainability of the organizations that, you, that you're a part of? I think we have made huge progress in the past few years specifically. And I'll point to the fact that I think around 2014, 2015, companies, especially in the technology industry, started disclosing their diversity statistics. And, you know, gender equality, gender diversity is only one kind of diversity. And where I think we're in the first innings of really seeing companies believe that diversity leads to better outcomes. And, and that's being reflected in, there's still not, you know, I, I wish there were hundreds of thousands of research studies that prove this, but they're starting to become, they're starting to be investors that are interested in this. There's, um, there's funds that are dedicated to companies that are, that are doing the right thing um, in terms of having gender diverse boards and ethnically diverse boards and management teams. And I, I think that's showing that we're still at the beginning because I don't think every company, you know, cares or has done very much in this area. But there are some leaders, and I think those leaders will have followers, and hopefully, and I'm a big believer in long-term progress on this. What does long-term progress look like for you? I think there's some European countries that have taken the view that you can't just leave market forces to get there and that you need to have quotas. Um, there are some middle path roads where, I mean, long-term progress is just gender equality, plain and simple. So 50% male, 50% female, or, or the equivalent thereof in terms of representing the population base. And I think um, gender diversity is just 
you know, there's more women in the workforce than than there ever happened before. There's more women graduating with college degrees than men right now. So when the workforce looks like the general population and at every level of seniority of a company, that's what long-term, you know, that's when my company ceases to exist. And so you mentioned the idea and whether, whether we call them quotas or anything else, but this idea that we should have a workforce, we should have an environment that, that better represents and better reflects our large society. What would be the problem with actually having core benchmarks that we're expecting our organizations to, to, to fill? Uh, core benchmarks that we're expecting our organizations to hit that actually shows a real reflection of the society that we have and the society that we know we're, we're growing into. Some American companies have done this. I mean, Accenture has committed to have a um, 50-50 workforce at every level by 2025, I believe. And there are other companies who've made pledges to have parity in their boards or on their management teams. Intel, even controversially at some point, um, instituted bonuses for or extra money for employees who referred diverse employees, including women, as opposed to just the regular referral payments for employees. So I think there are companies that are really trying and um, doing so publicly with specific targets, the way you would do if you had a, you know, any other kind of business objective. And it seems like one of the one of the structural challenges of being able to have that or think about that conversation is is one around pregnancy discriminations. And, you know, clearly the idea of child care and maternity leave are huge issues uh, when it comes to ensuring that women are included and welcomed and welcomed back into the workforce. Are, are you are there any efforts happening right now that are particularly encouraging when it comes to working moms? Uh, and, and what are some things that you think that we can better think about when it comes to addressing that issue? There are a lot of encouraging things happening. As I, as I mentioned, I, before launching Dairy God Boss, I wasn't very close, as close to how many companies really have spent millions of dollars on initiatives. There's a huge wave of um, companies that are launching something called returnships, so similar to internships, but for people returning to the workforce after an extended leave of absence for caretaking. While it's not always necessarily mothers, sometimes people drop out of the workforce to care for their parents or other ailing relatives. Many women dropped out of the workforce at the time that they had children or multiple children. And so this helps women get on their feet in a lower risk way to the company, whereby they can feel like, you know, instead of taking a chance, you know, hiring someone is a risky thing because once you hire them, your, your reputation as a manager and, and you know, whether you're, you have a productive team is determined based on whether you make the right hire. This sort of lowers the pressure on companies in, in a structural design way. And I think efforts like that are very smart because they, they're at their heart about design thinking. It's very difficult to eliminate human bias 100% because that's just the way we're wired. And training helps, and lots of companies are doing that. But these sort of design um, mechanisms to sort of counter our biases are really important. I have to tell you, I, um, I hope that people really truly internalize what the uh, not just the knowledge that you're sharing but also the work of fairy Godboss because I, I think becomes an important mechanism for 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 women to be able to go through their own exploration looking for a job and finding good employers I, I think it's also really important for all of us 
to have a, a clear and a more deliberate understanding of, uh, of the workforce of the workplaces that all of us exist in and how it's going to better correlate to the society that we're all hoping to forge towards. And if people want to learn more about Fairy Godboss, how do they do that? Well, we have a very memorable and unique name, Fairy Godboss, <laughs> so you can just look us up on the internet. We're, we'll be there for you. Georgine Huang, who is the co-founder and CEO of Fairy Godboss, thank you so much for speaking with us today, and thank you so much for your leadership and for your platform. Thank you, Lux. I'm Wes Moore, and you've been listening to Future City. Coming up, we're joined by New York Times writer Natalie Kitroeff, who recently helped to break a story that exposed a shocking level of discrimination against pregnant women across all socioeconomic levels. What she learned and what's being done about it. That's next. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. This is the show where we ask, what's next for our city and for our country? What are the big issues of the day, and who are the people pushing the envelope when it comes to progress and innovation? Today on the show, we've been examining financial equity and gender discrimination in the workforce. One of the biggest hurdles for women is pregnancy. The Guardian reports that a third of managers would rather employ a man in his 20s or 30s over a woman at the same age for fear of maternity leave. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern made news when she announced her pregnancy recently after being elected. She recently gave birth to her baby girl and after six weeks of maternity leave intends to return to work full-time, while her partner looks after their daughter at home. While New Zealanders have been largely supportive of Miss Ardern, she made headlines when she went to a local radio station and she was asked why it wasn't okay for employers to check with an applicant about her plans to become pregnant. Arden and many other women were shocked by the question. While the interviewer seemed genuinely confused as to why this wasn't an important question to know the answer to. This story illustrates the complicated reality of pregnancy when it comes to the workplace and employers have evidently not been handling their female employees' pregnancies well with many bosses demoting, penalizing, or firing female workers when they become pregnant. Joining us now is Natalie Kitroeff, who's a writer for the New York Times, and she recently worked on an investigation that exposed rampant pregnancy discrimination. Natalie, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for your work. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about some of the women that you investigated first, just so listeners can get an idea of the sorts of discrimination that we're talking about. Can you tell us about Otisha Woolbright? So Otisha Woolbright was a Walmart worker. She worked in the deli and the bakery at a Walmart in Florida. She was lifting heavy boxes of chicken and bread, and she got a note from her doctor once she got pregnant saying that she should not be lifting these boxes. She brought the note in and she asked for light duty And her manager told her that she had seen Demi Moore do a somersault on television when she was nearly full term. And so being pregnant was not an excuse for Otisha. So Otisha had to keep lifting these boxes. And eventually she gets hurt. Um, She asks for maternity leave and she gets fired takes her a year to find another job. She falls into a deep depression. This is the kind of treatment that we found to be common across the board, 
not just in low-wage work in Walmart, but also in some of the most highly paid jobs on Wall Street. What about Aaron Murphy? Aaron Murphy works at CORE, the world's largest commodities trading firm, and she's in, obviously, a white-collar setting. She is a six-figure salary. She gets a bonus. Um, she has an office job. Um, when she got pregnant, she began to be sidelined. She says she was passed over for promotions, for opportunities at advancement. Her boss told her when she mentioned the possibility that she might get another job at another firm, he said to her while she was pregnant, you're old and having babies. There's nowhere for you to go. Um, he said a number of other things. There was a kind of broader culture at Glencore that, you know, according to Aaron, that um, involved a sort of steady, steady stream of sexist comments um, that women had to endure. But embedded in it was this treatment of her as a pregnant woman, as, you know, what she calls sort of a second-class citizen. And this is someone who was rising up the ranks. Um, before she got pregnant. So so just to be clear, I mean, pregnancy discrimination, this is illegal, correct? That's right. There is a federal law on the books called the Pregnancy Discrimination Act that prevents employers, that essentially says that employers have to treat pregnant women the same way that they do other people who are similar in their, quote, ability or inability to work. Now, what that really means is a little bit up for debate. So the question is a good one because employers have argued in court that when it comes to, for example, accommodating a request like the one that Otisha made to stop lifting heavy things, they've said, look, pregnant women are most similar to workers who get injured off the job who don't deserve accommodation from us. And that argument has often won the day in court. So um, the Supreme Court has weighed in on this question in a case with UPS in which it said, look, if you're accommodating a lot of other people who have other disabilities and you're not accommodating pregnant women, which was the case in this UPS case, you're probably violating the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. Now, several states have their own much stronger protections that require much stronger enforcement of this law and sort of tell employers that they need to consider um, requests for rest breaks, for transfers out of, out of hazardous jobs. Um, but right now, it is, it is illegal. It's just that the law, you know, I mean, the way that the law works is that um, it's, kind of tested in court, and and that law in particular has been tested a lot. So when when we're talking about that law being being tested and what that and what that means to, you know, to women like Letitia, women like Aaron, um, how have we seen employers try to evolve around it and and not simply in the case of, you know, try to come up with legal ways of working around it, but have we watched employers try to, you know, become more become more evolved? in this process where the, where, the, where the law doesn't necessarily have to be the determining factor? Well, you know, the truth is that broadly what we've seen is a lot of, you know, investment in trying to retain women who, after they give birth, we've seen, you know, new 
lactation rooms. We've seen new parental leave policies. I think broadly there is a sense um, across the country that many employers have become kind of hip to the importance of maintaining mothers, um, of, of sorry, of retaining mothers in the workforce. But that hasn't prevented some of this treatment. And, and when you're asking sort of, okay, how have employers tried to change their own policies around pregnant women, what we've seen in our reporting is that that's most likely to happen after these employers face legal challenges from women who stand up and say that they've been mistreated. What we saw with Walmart was that 14, their national policy did not say that when pregnant women ask for accommodations, a temporary solution might be a job transfer. That just wasn't in its national policy. It was its policy in certain states that had stricter laws, but it wasn't its national policy. But then, you know, it's facing this lawsuit right now that's covering potentially over a thousand women. There are several complaints filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on this issue. And so in 2017, Walmart changed its national policy so that a temporary transfer was included. Now, it says it's a possible solution. It's not a guarantee. So, you know, in, in that case, it does seem as though the company made that change amidst this legal pressure. Have other companies started taking the lead or, or how, 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 much, how much recognition did that get industry-wide? Well, I mean, you know, I think the change happened slower than we might expect. And I think um, what you're seeing right now is that as a result of our reporting, New York State has begun investigating Walmart, Merck, Glencore, um, and Novartis for, you know, past claims of pregnancy discrimination. Um, I, you know, whether or not that prompts policy changes within the company is sort of remains to be seen. Um, but, you know, there's, it seems like there's some activity picking up, especially after we wrote this story. It certainly seems like um, there may be um, m more pressure on some of these companies. It's also fascinating because when you look at the data, the data shows that a man who becomes a father is actually more likely to get a promotion, correct? A man who becomes a father gets a 6% pay bump, the data <laughs> shows. This is, a, this is a study from 2014. Um, whereas a woman, every child that a woman has shaves 4% off of her hourly wages. So having a kid seems to only be a penalty. Having a kid seems to only bring penalties for women, not for men. Which is interesting because, uh, you know, you, you think about the U.S. being, a, uh, you know, pretty notorious for having a, you know, inhospitable environment for working parents and how challenging it is for working parents. And, and, and the truth is, is that the data is, is basically saying, um, yes, but it's more complicated. It's much more inhospitable for working mothers than it is for working fathers. It certainly seems that there is a bias that that plays out in the workplace that affects women in a way that's different than it affects men, that employers see the idea of being a good mom as incompatible with being a good employee. So visibly pregnant women and mothers are seen as less dependable, less reliable, less committed to their jobs, more irrational. That, that's you know, that comes from sociological studies. 
and the way that that bias affects women. Whereas, so fathers are, you know, there's a sense that these are the, now these men have become the breadwinners of their households, so they deserve more money. Of course, the reality is in America, it's much more likely today than ever before that women are the breadwinners of their families and women are the ones that, not in all cases, but are, are, it's much more likely today than it was, say, half a century ago, that women are the ones supporting their families. But what happens when you have a kid is that, you know, that bias translates into, you know, just a lower salary trajectory for working women. Uh, what were some of the most eye-opening things uh, and relevatory things that you that you saw and, and and learned from the investigation? I think we were surprised by how pervasive this seems to be. We got an outpouring of response to the story, but we also had at the outset just an enormous number of stories, and we just we talked to dozens of women and. It seemed to us to be sort of similar to the Me Too movement in the sense that these were conversations that women were having amongst themselves, and these were experiences that women sometimes were keeping to themselves, but it wasn't something that anyone had really put their finger on as a kind of broad national problem. And when these conversations began to happen, and certainly after the story came out, I mean, we heard from people at every single rung of the economic ladder who were saying, this happened to my mom, and I had this conversation with my kids, and I had this conversation with my aunt. And, you know, so the just the pervasiveness of this um, and the fact that, you know, it's sort of something that you it can feel like it's just staring you right in the face and you're not looking at it. and And once you just start to look at it and talk about it, it becomes just hard to ignore. And what type of measures to do we need to take as a larger society to, to, to truly ensure that pregnant women and mothers are included and valued inside of the workplace? This is a, it's a fair question. It's not one that I really have the answer to or, you know, spend time sort of working towards. Because my job as, as a reporter um, is just to sort of examine what's going on and talk to people and reflect that reality back. I will say that, you know, something that we have been alerted to and are working on is a look at how these laws that exist are not actually preventing discrimination against pregnant women. And so whether that means that the laws are written in a way that's vague and leaves vast gaps. Um, through which many women are falling, or whether that means that the enforcement of them isn't enough, we, we're, we're, that's something we're looking into. We're also looking into the, the notion that the U.S. is, you know, the richest country in the world and with the largest GDP, um, the world's biggest economy, and yet we fail in terms of a lot of measures of the health of women and children and you know, the workforce outcomes of women compared to every other developed country in the world. So the international comparison may also yield some some answers to that question. 
Well, we're really looking forward to the uh, to the next installment of this work and the next installment of this research. It's important, and uh, and your contribution is uh, is is greatly appreciated. Uh, Natalie Kitroeff, who is part of the team behind the pregnancy discrimination investigation at the New York Times, thank you so much for your work and for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm Wes Moore. You've been listening to Future City, and coming up. We'll learn about how student loan debt adversely impacts women more than men. And we'll also learn about an organization working in Baltimore that is emphasizing the importance of financial knowledge for young girls. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. This is the show where we ask, what's next for our city and for our country? We are now joined by Katie Labosco, who is a writer with CNN Money. Katie, it is such a joy to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. So, Katie, I'd like to start with an article that you wrote recently, and the title is pretty inflammatory and very powerful. Uh, it's that student, the title is, Student Loan Debt Just Hit $1.5 trillion. Women Hold Most of It. So first of all, let's address just how out of control student debt has gotten for this country. And then I'd like to break that down about how women hold most of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, for someone who covers us a lot, that's still a really eye-popping number for me and probably for a lot of your listeners. Um, Yeah, so $1.5 trillion, we hit that mark in the beginning of 2018. And, you know, this is not new, but... The total outstanding student loan debt, it exceeds the total outstanding auto loan debt in the U.S. That's at about $1.1 trillion. And it also exceeds the total amount of outstanding credit card debt, and that's at about $977 billion. So we're now talking about this, this concept of student loans uh, outpacing some of the things that people are most warned about. Uh, and which is interesting when people talk about auto and, and homes, et cetera. Uh, you know, people think that you have to be careful about how much loan you take on. But when it comes to the importance of education, uh, people look at that as an investment, even though we're now looking at the debt that people are paying on it being larger than any other forms of debt that people have on their books. Right, right. And also, you know, these are sometimes 18-year-olds that are taking this amount of money out. And sure, it takes them more than one year to to amass this debt, but a lot of these people are 18 trying to decide what college is best for them um, and what's going to be most cost-effective, and they're taking on this debt so early compared to, you know, maybe people taking out an auto loan or racking up credit card debt. And the statistics are showing that that women are getting the brunt of this debt burden. Just, Just how much money on average will a woman owe uh, more than a man when she graduates from college, and why is that? So, yes, according to a new report from the American Association of University Women, um, they show that the average woman will owe $2,740 more than a man upon finishing a bachelor's degree. Um, and they also looked at associate degrees and certificate holders, um, and women will uh, are finishing those degrees with a few thousand dollars more in debt than men do too for the same degree. So we're watching we're watching now uh, women overtaking men when it comes to college attendance, college completion, postgraduate programs, and all that is really powerful and really good. But we're also watching debt accumulation rise at a much faster 
rate. And so if we know that part of it is, uh, is this idea that, you know, maybe they're attending more expensive colleges or, uh, or, or more selective colleges, uh, you know, and, and scholarships and, and grants, et cetera, what are the things that we can actually do? to change these different dynamics? Because the answer can't simply be, well, we just need to tell them to stop attending, uh, you know, competitive schools. Uh, so, so what are the things that we can tangibly do to be able to continue to encourage the attendance at the pace that we're seeing, but not taking on the same, uh, same type of financial burdens that we're continuing to see? You know, I like to point out, too, that just because you take on debt doesn't mean it's the end of the world, you know, if it's, if it's something that you can manage. And plenty of studies show that a college degree does pay off. Um, there's one from the Federal Reserve that says, on average, you recoup the cost of a college degree by the age of 34. But that being said, I think families and students can be smarter consumers about looking at, at colleges and colleges and us as a society can maybe make that process a little more transparent. And it also seems like it goes back to the psychology of, of whether or not women are being encouraged to go into higher education in the first place, right? Where, where I think that, you know, we have, we've actually made, we've made momentum and we've made strides when it comes to the fact that when college and universities were first created, frankly, uh, you know, my daughter was not included in that conversation. Uh, you know, you were not including that conversation. I was not including that conversation. You know, mm-hmm. when college was first created, uh, in the colleges were created for, you know, at most 15 percent of the population. All the rest of us were not supposed to go to college. And, and when colleges then opened up doors and said we want to be able to, uh, you know, create greater access and, and greater opportunity, uh, you knew that there had to be then be structural thinkings about how to recreate what higher ed, what the intent of higher ed was. Um, and the fact that we now have more, uh, you know, the encouragement of women to go into higher education uh, is something that we have seen real strides on. Uh, the, the financial component around it um, is something that uh, will, will be, uh, will be a, a hindrance unless that process is also, um, you know, not pulled together as well as you highlighted in your, uh, in, you know, in your article. Yes, there, I, it's great that women are encouraged to pursue a higher education and, but there is this mantra that, you know, parents may want to send their child to the best school at any cost. And, right. you know, this doesn't work like a regular business model. It, because a school is more expensive, you may think it's a better school <laughs> just, on the, just on the fact that it's more expensive or it looks, you know, more prestigious. And I think society has, has moved away from that mantra a little bit. Recently, because we see eye-popping numbers like $1.5 trillion in student debt, um, but, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there is a thought here that, you know, parents really want to see their, their daughter go to college. Maybe, maybe their mom didn't um, have that opportunity. And so, you know, I've talked to plenty of parents who say it's, it's you know, the best school at any cost. Uh, it doesn't matter if we have to take out debt. It doesn't matter if we have to take out a home equity line. It doesn't matter if we have to uh, put some of this on a credit card. I want my daughter to have the the best opportunity she can possibly she can possibly have. And there's some guilt there too. If yeah. if sometimes that you know if parents don't think they can afford to send their child to the best school they got into. They, they feel they feel a little bit guilty. It's a uh, it's it's a uh, it's it's fascinating because when you think about how people go about choosing schools, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head where 
you know, the finances becomes a, a, a really important part uh, of it. Um, but oftentimes, the separation of the finances and the the uh, the debt at the end of it, those are two separate conversations that oftentimes don't get met. And I think one one final question for you for you, Katie, if when you think about the the thing that you want people to most take away from your research and this article, what is that? I just want people to take a more critical look at at the price tag before they decide. And you know what? Maybe you'll you'll still decide that that school that's maybe a little bit more expensive is still best for you. And that's and that's fine. But I think people need to go into the whole process with their with their eyes wide open um, and really try to understand how much this is going to cost them in the long run. We've been speaking with Katie Labosco from CNN Money. Katie, this was great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. For the last part of the show, we'll be speaking with Betsy Kelder, who is the executive director for Investing Girls. Investing Girls is an organization that teaches girls financial literacy. I'm very excited about this conversation. Betsy, thank you so much for joining. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So first of all, let's learn a bit more about the inspiration for the creation of an organization like this. How did you all start and uh, what was the impetus of it? Excellent. Yeah, so we started eight years ago in the Boston area, actually. Um, and there was really sort of two drivers of our creation. The first was an interaction that our founder had with a student um, at a school locally here in the Boston area who was um, shadowing her in her work. She works in a private equity firm and was talking about the work that she did with women, educating them on um, financial literacy concepts. And she said, you know, I'm only in high school, but I, I want to know this. You know, my friends should be knowing this. We should start earlier and, and we should have exposure to this. And from there, um, the idea really uh, expanded. And in addition to that, our founder, our founder also had the experience when she was in her uh, graduate degree in business school going into finance classes in her second year and noticing that she was one of very few women in those classes, despite the fact that the cl- the cohort overall was uh, was dominated by women. And so that got her to thinking, well, you know, wh- where are all the women? Why aren't they going into finance? So um, she founded the organization with a dual mission, both to educate all girls um, in financial literacy concepts, and then also to take that a step further and to work to uh, improve the pipeline of women in finance and financial services. So what? So how exactly does Invest in Girls works? What are the logistics and what's the model? So our model is really a tiered approach. Um, we work with all of our students on uh, personal financial literacy. We have three modules of our curriculum. We call them becoming the CFO, the CEO, and the CIO of your life. Um, so C- the CFO curriculum focuses on what is your relationship with money, um, basics of personal finance, how do you create a budget, how do you make um, savings goals, what's the difference between a credit and a debit card, um, and what's credit in general. From there, we move forward and we start to talk in our CEO module about return on investment. So we'll talk a little bit about college um, and starting to think about, you know, what, co- what career might, what, might you want, what's the salary of that, and how should that impact your decision about where you go to school. Uh, we talk about insurance um, and other issues like that. And then the CIO curriculum really gets into the details of uh, investment instruments. What are they? What are the different kinds? We use a stock market simulator game so they can um, use uh, simulations to buy and sell stocks and, uh, and see how that impacts their, their, um, 
their finances and really helps them to understand what those, um, what those implications are. The girls who are interested and show an acumen in that area, we then work with further to expose them to finance and financial services as a career. Um, so we'll go a little bit deeper uh, in a next set of workshops around what the roles might be in those different careers and what those jobs look like. And then we offer a one-to-one uh, mentor-mentee match for uh, an even smaller subset of girls who are really interested in expanding their network within the field and uh, becoming engaged in a larger ecosystem of women. Um, all of our girls, after they go through the workshops, have the opportunity to attend an industry trip. So we go to a financial services firm or the finance department of a larger corporation, and we introduce them to primarily the women, but also it's important to meet the men who work in, this, in the field as well. They get a tour. They get to kind of see um, the concepts that they've been learning in action. Um, they usually have a panel and get to uh, talk with a larger set of women who work there. It's interesting because it's, it's not only educational, it's demystifying, right? It, it's, yeah. it's letting them know that, that you are in rooms that you belong in, mm-hmm. uh, which is hugely important psychologically for, for, for the, the women and the young girls as well. What, what are the ages that, uh, that you start working with? Yeah, we work primarily with high school girls. Um, We do have a couple of programs we run with girls as young as eighth grade, but generally speaking, we work with high school girls. And we selected that age because we actually, um, when the organization was in in its infancy, it did some research with the National Council for Research on Women to understand sort of when was a right time to start these conversations. And one of the things that they realized was around the age of 16 is when people are getting their first job, so money is becoming relevant in a different way, um, and sort of the understanding of how to deal with it um, becomes a little bit different. So that's where where we started targeting um, our program. When people, if, if a person comes up to you and makes an argument and says, listen, I think this is great, but I think it should be for, for all kids, uh, all students, why are you specifically targeting girls uh, yeah. and not for all students? What, what's your response? Yeah, I love that question. And actually, the first thing that I would say is we're not actually saying that boys don't need this education, too, particularly around the financial literacy concepts. We really believe that everyone should be getting this um, this information. One of our uh, strongest supporters likes to talk about how um, you wouldn't let someone drive a car if you didn't teach them first, and yet we let people use credit cards and have bank accounts and invest in the stock market without any educating. Um, and so certainly we believe that all, um, all people should have financial literacy education. But what we do know is that this is one of those topics where uh, girls learn better in a single-gendered environment. And um, so what we're really doing is looking to create that environment of trust and comfort that can lead to uh, learning, and that will lead to confidence within the industry and within the subject matter. So we're not saying boys don't need it, but what we're saying is girls need to learn it in a, in, um, a, a different environment that really supports their growth, that allows us to use examples that are more relevant for them, and that allows them to have conversations and to ask questions that they may not ask um, in, uh, in a, a, a co-ed environment. So this becomes um, one of those subjects that, that is just really, you know, it's uncomfortable to talk about money. People really don't like to. It's interesting because it's such a ubiquitous part of our lives, and yet it's really sort of taboo to talk about 
how much money you make and how you spend your money and how you invest your money. And so what we're trying to do is demystify that a little bit and make it comfortable to talk about. Betsy Kelder, the executive director for Investing Girls. If people want to learn more about Investing Girls, how do they find out more? Yeah, please go to our website. It's investgirls.org. There's lots of information there, and we invite people to reach out to us. We would welcome the opportunity to be in uh, even more schools in the Baltimore area um, and throughout, so please do be in touch. Betsy, thank you so much for making the time, Dave. Thank you so much for your work. Yeah, Wes, thank you so much for your time and for your work as well. This is a great topic, and I'm glad to be part of it. This has been a really powerful and exciting show for me personally. And before we take off, I would like to leave you with just a few thoughts. When I was 14 years old, my mother got her first job that gave her full benefits. It was the first job that she only had to work one job. The first job that gave her reliable hours. It was also the job that brought our family back to Baltimore. And that job was at the NEE Casey Foundation. Now that job didn't just change her life. It changed the life of her children, including me. Creating a greater level of inclusion for women in our economy and better pathways for wealth creation amongst women is not only good for the individual, it's good for our institutions. It's not something that should happen accidentally. It's something that should happen intentionally. If you receive public dollars, a tangible commitment to gender diversity and inclusion should be required. Pay disparities between men and women should be reduced to horrible relics of our past. Future cities are ones where women are not fighting for gender equity on their own, but right alongside their male counterparts. People who believe deeply and know that their successes will be ours too. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. The show airs the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. You can hear today's episode along with previous episodes online at wypr.org slash podcastcentral or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm your host, Wes Moore, on 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station. Thanks for listening. Future City is sponsored by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.